Okay, turn to Romans chapter 6, please. Romans chapter 6. And let me pray. You are good. I am so grateful for your restoration, for your forgiveness, for your cleansing. I'm so grateful that I I get to stand before you clean, whole, and forgiven right with you. What a gift. What an amazing gift that I, me, the sinner that I am, the broken man that I am, what a gift that I get to stand before you whole, justified, clean, forgiven, perfectly loved, washed, redeemed. I treasure it. I treasure it. And I thank you that you've given that gift to all of us that trust in you, that follow you. But Lord, we want to come into the realization of this even more in our daily lives. I ask that you would show us how you are transforming us still into who you've declared us to be. So God, would you please um, turn the lights on? I pray that light bulbs would be going off. I pray that puzzles would be solved and that things would be unlocked in our hearts and our minds, that we could see the path that you have outlined for us for formation into your image. I'm so grateful for this incredible church and these wonderful people that I get to call family. Thank you that we get to do life together. Thank you for making ways for us to do that. And I pray that you could help us take advantage of the home fellowships and these little these get-togethers to be together and encourage one another in, in you. Would, you. would you guide us through the Bible Would you show it to our own eyes? May we be able to look down at the text in our laps and say, oh yeah, it's, he's right, it's right there. May you guide us through this, Holy Spirit. I think this is so important. We love you in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, this is Romans 6, 1 through 14. I've got it up on your screen. Romans 6, 1 through 14, the best kept secret, I think, maybe in the Bible. Here we go. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we, who died to sin, still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him in 
by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body so that you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will no will sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace this is god's word we've been learning about how the bible views human formation for the past 3 sundays or so And first of all, just by way of review, I hope you've noticed this, it must be said that the Bible has a very high view of the potential of human flourishing. A very, very high view. From the Bible's first page, it declares that human beings are, unlike any other creature, made in the image of God. That is, we were made to commune with God and to rule over creation like God and for God, the way he would as his representatives. But not only is the Bible optimistic about mankind, it's also, I hope you found refreshing, it's also realistic. One of the things as a young man that drew me to the Bible was its refreshing realism about the state of, the state of human life. It concedes that though the image of God is not lost in mankind, it it has been gravely marred or disfigured, in a sense, with the arrival of sin, a spiritual disease brought on by the invitation of humans themselves. And it's now inherent in every human, in all of us. You know, we... we, uh, I was saying... I'm a teacher at a school, and they're all these kids, they want to run the fastest. And some have the heart, but they don't, they don't have the art. They don't have the body for it. 
you know, but their hearts, they, they can feel that they were meant to fly. They were meant, they were meant to run without being weary. They were meant to do great acts. Some of us feel in the shower that we were meant to sing and flex the golden pipes, you know? We got, I can hear it in my heart. I can hear it. And yet we don't have in our bodies, we can't match what we know is there. There's this dissonance between who we ought to be and who we are. The same goes with our ethics and our morals, maybe some of your own habits. There are things in you that you know, I'm supposed to be rid of that. I'm supposed to shed these old habits that are hurting me and hurting others. And yet here I am again. What, what do we do with all of this? The Bible is very refreshing. In one sense, Christianity is about nothing if it's not about change. Did you know that? God does not give up on the human project, but from page three, he sets about restoring and redeeming mankind, forming them again into the kind of people they were always designed to be, did you know that that's what the Bible is about? The Bible, God's, the Bible says that God is forming you and forming me into the kind of person, the kind of people that we were always designed to be. That is what, in a sense, what the Bible is all about when it comes to anthropology or when it comes to the human being. He's restoring the Imago Dei in you. But it, Transform us into what? Well, ultimately, the picture the Bible gives us is of the ideal human being, Jesus Christ. Remember, we talked, when we first started this series, we were in James, and he talked about being a mirror, that when we look into the Bible and we see an image of ourselves coming back at us, we see the image of Jesus. It's showing us that who he, how God views us and where he's moving us into I've come, Jesus said, uh, I have come to give life and to give it abundantly. He lived a life of abundance and a wholeness, true shalom, Jesus did, as he loved God with all of his heart and loved others so sacrificially that it cost him everything. And this is who, through the help of the Holy Spirit, 2 Corinthians 3.18 tells us, we are gradually being turned into um, from, it, from glory to glory into the image of Christ. Jesus himself said, you will do greater things than this. He's talking about an abundance of life that flows out of us. But how does this process work? How do we participate with it? How does this process work? What part do you and I have to play in participating with Holy Spirit as he forms and shapes us into the people that he's wanting us to be? How do, we, how do we step into the abundance of life? How do we do it? Well, that's why I wanted to bring us to this passage. This passage, to, for me, is one of the most profound secrets, loose quotes, because it's right there, it's not really a secret, but enigmatic type of scriptures that outlines the process of spiritual formation. How do we change and unseat the selfish tendencies and the muscle memory of our bodies? Right? The reactions that we have. How do we defeat those stubborn habits 
or coping mechanisms that, may, that have made us feel better for so long but have been so hurtful at the same time. Furthermore, how do we become people not just defined by what we're not but defined by what we are? Wholeness, people of true shalom. That's what it means. Wholeness, health in every sense of the word, mind and body. How do we step into that as a community and as a church? That's what I'm so excited about in this next season of our church. Stepping into those kinds of people and those kinds of selves and loving each other in that way. How do we do it? Well, first, let me just say that uncontroversially, this passage shows us that Paul did not see redemption as only the moment in time when people decide to intellectually believe a few things about Jesus and God. He did believe that, but not only that. Redemption had a much wider birth for for Paul. He certainly did believe that, but he didn't stop there. For Paul, redemption is not just a moment in time. It is. But it's also a progressive sequence of real human and divine actions and events that results in the transformation of the body and of the mind. We see that through this and throughout. Let me read that again because I worked hard on that sentence. You can tell that's why I'm reading it. For for Paul, redemption is not just a moment in time. It is that. But it's also a progressive sequence of real, that means tangible, human and divine actions and events that results in the the eventual transformation of the mind and of the body. For Paul, the new life, that's the Bible's greatest synonym for salvation, life. For Paul, not now, Siri. For Paul, the new life in Christ is not merely an inner life and belief and imagination, even if that imagination is spiritually informed. It's not just that. Um, It is a life of an embodied and whole person. It's a way of being and living that prioritizes and organizes all of every activity and thing that you're about. That's what it is. And without this definition of life and redemption, you will read through especially the book of Romans and you will misunderstand the entire thing all the way through. It's really important that we get that right. In this passage, Paul outlines the process of human transformation in three stages. Please take notes. These are things that I wish I would have known as a young man. I look back and go, oh, why couldn't I have grasped that earlier? He says that to truly change into who we were meant to be, here and now, or to start that process, or to keep going in that process, we must realize three things. Number one, a new reality, a new realm, a, new, a whole new ball game, a whole new animal. I don't know how you want to say it in your notes. Say some, a new reality. That's what I put in my notes. Secondly, a new psychology, a new way to to orient your mind. And thirdly, a new physicality, a new way to treat your body, a new way to activate your body in in worship and living to God. Number one, a new reality. Secondly, a new psychology. And thirdly, a new physicality. So important. Let's go through each one. 
Number one, a new reality. I'm getting this. I want you, I always, my goal in giving, in giving you a Bible lesson is for you to look down and see it for yourself in your own lap. I want you to, I, I, I dream, I really do, as I'm putting these sermons together, I dream that my, my true north is that you would be able to go, oh, yeah, it's, it's, it's right there. He's not making this stuff up. <laughs> He's getting it from the authority and from the source. And I think you'll see it in verse, verses 1 through 10. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism unto death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. That's the goal, to walk in newness of life. Right now, to walk. That's what living means. Verse 5, For if we have been united with him in a death like his... We shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with Christ. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. Okay, Paul starts out this section by answering an obvious objection that anyone would have after reading his first five chapters. Um, he basically, in the first five chapters, he outlines his perspective on sin and grace. And he says some really amazing things. I think the culmination of which is at the end of chapter five, where he says this beautiful sentence, this great line. He says, where sin abounds, grace does much more abound. What a triumphant statement. Where sin abounds, grace abounds even more. In other words, sin's got nothing on grace. As stubborn as our sin is, as rampant as sin is in our world, grace wins. Amen. Right? Amen. Well, the obvious question there is, the follow-up to this that Paul anticipates is, well, if sin ushers in more grace, why don't we just keep sinning so we can usher in more grace? Isn't sin then a good thing, the key that unlocks more grace? And Paul says, well, here's what he says that's pretty astounding. He says no, but then he says something even more astounding. He says it shouldn't even be possible. This should not, to live in sin, to, or let me put it this way, to live on sin and to live on grace is not possible because we're talking about, Paul would say, we're talking about two different realms, two different, completely different realities. Grace and sin are completely different worlds, different realities that we, through the death and life of Jesus, we've been transferred from one reality, one realm, one ball game, whatever you want to say, from one reality to a whole different playing field, to a different altitude altogether. He's saying the two are mutually exclusive. You can't run on one. You can't be fueled by one and be fueled by the other. 
So first of all, Paul says when you rely on Jesus, you are what we're going to do on October 1st. You are baptized. Those of you that are being baptized, this would be a great section to listen to. You are baptized. That is, you are, when you're saying you're baptized, you're saying I've been transferred from one realm, from, from one way of thinking, from one system of, of being to another to a completely different way of looking at the world and looking at myself. The things that used to move me don't move me anymore. The things that used to motivate me, that used to drive me, that used to get me out of bed in the morning, those things don't do that for me anymore. I'm now, I've now got a higher grade of fuel in my engine that's moving me. That's what he's saying. In other words, here... Paul is not talking about specific sins, though he definitely would include them, for sure. He's talking about the economy of sin that prioritizes and organizes your life. That's what he's talking about. He's talking about the economy of sin that prioritizes and organizes the world system and the citizens that live in it. In other words, there are, there are things, diseased motives that get the world moving. What moves people? What drives them? There is a narrative. Um, if you ever read, if you ever a chance to read Viktor Frankl's uh, *Man's Search for Meaning*, Viktor Frankl was a psychoanalyst who uh, was a Jewish person that lived through Auschwitz, and he made it's a small little book, by the way. It's an incredible book, and he made some incredible observations just by watching how people react in the most atrocious human conditions that you can imagine. And his, at the end of it all, his thesis was that human beings are meaning-shaped creatures. Without meaning, a human will stop surviving. In other words, there is a narrative, there is something that is getting every one of us up in the morning and out that door and to do what we're supposed to do. There is a algorithm. There is a software program that is moving us and driving us to whatever it is that we're doing. And there is, a, and there is sin's narrative regarding the meaning of, in, of human life that's driving all people, and there's the gospel's narrative of what the meaning of life is. And no matter how you flesh out sin's narrative, it's always, always a message of salvation. What is powerful enough to motivate, to motivate you to move? How can I get you to buy my product? By selling you that you will be saved if you get it. That you'll be okay if you buy this from me. That's when you'll be valid as a human. Or when you get that person's love. Or you'll be secure. It's another word for salvation. You'll, you can finally rest and be safe and secure if you get that promotion. Or you can feel valid in, as a human if you can get your boss's attention. Or, or whatever it might be. If I get the promotion or if I get a bigger house or if I do all of these things. Whatever it is, there's something like that. Self-salvation that's driving us. If I can get her attention, if I can use sex, then I will, be, I will feel okay with myself. Addictions are very rarely about the substance itself. Pornography addiction is really not really about sex. It's about feeling okay. Someone says, I see you and I want you and you belong here. It's salvation. It's a sin system that drives us forward 
That is the economy of sin that ends up organizing and prioritizing our lives. If your salvation, your survival is hanging on whatever it might be, whatever, it could be a cup of coffee, it could be a doorknob, whatever it is. If your salvation, feeling okay within yourself is hinging on it, oh, you'll spend, you'll go into debt, you'll spend as much money as, I mean, you will, you will move, you'll get up out of bed, you'll get there. How do we move societies? Advertisers, how do they do it? By not just saying, your life will be better with my product, by saying, you will finally be living if you get my product. It's what makes the world chug along. That is the economy of sin that organizes and prioritizes the world and the people that are living in it. And that is the reality or realm that Paul is, is referring to when he's speaking of sin. That's that old playing field, the driving narrative behind it that gets people to do whatever it is that they do, socially acceptable or not. So for followers of Jesus, Paul says that we are no longer moved by or running on sin, but on the life of Christ. It's a new reality. In other words, Jesus' experience is now available to us. Jesus' reality is now our reality. What moved Christ in his world, what got him up, what made him go down the street, what made him minister to people, what gave him that abundant life, that same motive, that same narrative is now what we're chugging on. It's now what's moving us every day. We're motivated by a whole different system of belief. Do you understand? Are you following me? That means, what does that mean? It means we have access to Jesus' Father like he did. Think of that. We have the closeness with the Father that Jesus had. Think of that. We are perfectly, the reality is, we are already perfectly right with God. Oh, there's power in those words. You are right with God. Not 30%, 50%, 60%, you are 100% right with God the way Jesus was right with God if you're in Christ. You're breathing the same air as Christ. It means that we're perfectly accepted already, eternally. It means that there's nothing that keeps us away from God's presence, nor nothing can. It means that we are sons and daughters of God. Think of that. Oh, you guys, the riches of Christ. The riches of what it means to be a Christian. It just, do you realize what we have? It's a new reality. It means that we have a constant, abiding access to the presence of God that we're invited to stay in wherever we're at on the planet, whether we're in Auschwitz, like Viktor Frankl, or whether we're in Seattle here. We have abiding access into his presence at all times. It means that we are heirs of the kingdom. We are royalty. Kings and queens of the kingdom of God. We are fulfilled and made whole. Do you, do you believe that? That's what Paul is saying here. How can you live in sin when you're over here? When you're in this 
atmosphere over here. When you're breathing this kind of altitude, this kind of air, how can you, you can't act like you're down there still. So when it comes to sin, that's why Paul is saying that the two, the two realities are absolutely incompatible. We are no longer moved to prioritize and organize our lives around false messiahs that promise what he has already given us. So when we see the new gadget or when we see the new clothes or when, we see, when we're on Instagram and we see other people's perfect-looking lives, we can say, I'm already fulfilled. I don't, I'm, I'm good. I've already got shalom. I already have wholeness. I'm, I don't need to be moved or driven to go get that to make myself feel like how they look in that one picture. Now, um, I, want, I need to point something out in the Greek to you. Notice that in the Greek, the phrase, phrases throughout this passage like, you have been baptized or you were buried in Christ, I need to, this is in what's called the erost tense of the, uh, of the Greek language, which means you are enjoying something presently based on something that is a fixed event that has happened in the past. It's very, very important for you to understand that. This new reality that you get to be a part of is based on what Jesus has done in the past. It's also in the passive mood in the Greek. What, passive, what does that mean? It means you have not done anything to, for this part. Phase one is something that God initiated by his own agency. Yes, you agreed to it, you chose it, but he's the one with the power to usher you into this new, age, this new reality based on a fixed event, his work on the cross, his, his life really, his work on the cross, his resurrection, and his ascension. That has won you. You don't have to add to that. That's one you access into this new reality. And this phrase is really important. Those phrases are important to keep in mind. Now, we in the Western world usually stop right there. We usually say, isn't salvation so great? And, and right there, we could say, yes, it is. That is. This new reality that we have access to is amazing, but Paul does not stop there. Paul says, now, if you want access to this, you, me, we must do two things. Secondly, we need a new psychology. Look at verse 11. He says, so you must reckon yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. By contrast to the, la the last step, Reckon yourselves is in the imperative mood in the Greek. That's a command. In other words, this step to reckon yourself dead and alive to Christ is something that you must do. This will, hear me, church, this will not be done for you. This is a mental, psychological discipline that Paul is calling us to. In order to not forget and to walk from this new reality and bring it into our way of life, Paul is saying, and like the rest of the New Testament says throughout, we must train our minds to reckon ourselves dead to sin. That is, to that old economic system and be alive, to, remind ourselves of the new reality, to be alive to Christ. 
This, I'm going to say it again because it's so important. You must do this. This will not happen for you. Mike. Yes, you in the front. I see, I see that hand. Yes. I'm going to give you an application. Oh, I'll bounce off of what you say. Usually when I wait, you end up answering it, but it's that just one application of I must reckon myself dead to sin and alive to Christ. So the enemy's always going to remind me of my sin. I'm dead to that sin. That feels like intangible. Right. Let me keep going. Go. Let me keep going. And then you feel free to jump in if I didn't get it, if I didn't scratch the itch, but I'm going to go for it here. Um, number one, this is, let me just say this, Paul. Let me preface with this because I feel like, and let me just say this. I feel like what Paul is asking, if it's not already, should be what all of us are asking. This is, this is the natural, okay, how does this work? I want this. How does it work? First of all, let me say this is difficult. This is not Christianity 101 here. We're talking about a higher level of living, a higher level of class that takes practice and ongoing work, okay? So I, I first want to say that to all of us, and this is the life that Paul is inviting us to practice and inviting us into, is a new way of training the mind. What does it look like? Well, I've got at least two things. One, we disassociate ourselves with what Paul calls the old man. We disassociate ourselves. In other words, in the moment, in the moment we say with confidence in God and the new life he's giving us, that is not nor shall it be me. Okay? You learn to say, okay, I want to eat right now because I'm feeling insecure. That is not nor shall it be me. I want to linger on that image Long, I want to linger on that image rather than turning away. Okay, that's the old man. I'm disassociating. That is not, nor shall it be me. And it takes what uh, I think what, uh, what Augustine said, I think it was him, he said, to thine own self be true. You've got to be honest and you've got to recognize, okay, that's something I want to feel good about myself. That's something I want because I feel, I want to feel, or I want, I want to get, I'm trying to solve, the, I'm trying to um, uh, bring unity with my spouse, not because of her, but because I want to feel better. I don't feel saved unless Nicole likes me. So I'm going to pursue her around the house until we get this right. Am I really doing it for her? No. I need to say, this is, this is not, nor shall it be me. I'm doing this because I feel cut off. No, I need to remind myself. So it takes tremendous amount of discipline and an association. Um, Speaking of Augustine, so uh, any of you know uh, the story of Augustine? He was a womanizer. He is what we would probably call today a sex addict. He um, had many liaisons with many women until his life was radically changed. And there's this beautiful story that one day he was back in a town that he hadn't been in for years and years and years and years. And one of his old uh, liaisons saw him. And she, he saw her and he tried to avoid her. And she said, Augustine, Augustine. And finally he turned around and he looked and she was so confused she thought he didn't recognize her. And she goes, Augustine, it is me. And famously he said, I know, but it is no longer me. 
See, he was mentally disassociating himself from those desires that have been taken over by sin. Good desires that have been taken over by sin. So first we disassociate ourselves. And as for the pieces of sin still dwelling in our body, those, you guys, let's be honest, those automatic tendencies to act and feel ways that are wrong, Paul calls it, um, let me just read Romans 7.23 to you. Paul calls it the law of sin which is in my members. Paul, let me just say, Paul's view of psychology was so complex that he knew there are things that we, on the unconscious level, that are just, it's in our body. It's reaction that we've been doing for years and years and years and years and years. He called that the law of sin in my body. Um, we recognize another Pauline quote from chapter 7, verse 17. It is no more I, but sin that dwells in me. What is Paul doing? He's disassociating himself from the sin that is still creeping in his body. And we'll get to that in, in, our, in a little bit. But for now, we must mentally disassociate ourselves with those um, ingrained proclivities and coping mechanisms. We have years of baking salvation or redemption in a sinful way into our body through reacting and through acting in certain ways, survival mechanisms and repetition makes it a habit. And sometimes those things still happen, right? That's in our body. All that to say, Paul's wise enough to talk about that, and he's going to go on with it. So in Christ, and, and this is what I want you all to hear, especially I think you, Paul, to answer your question to all that I hope all of us were having. In Christ, we've been given the power to direct how we think. This is what the Bible calls meditation. We, in Christ, you have the power to direct how you think. We get to choose what we dwell on in our minds. Did you know that? We get to choose what we dwell on. Our minds are like a TV that are always on. We cannot turn it off. Even when you're sleeping, your mind is moving. You cannot turn it off. But we can change the channel. Okay? Your brain's going to always think. You can change the channel. One of the most um, influential Christian thinkers of the fourth century understood with all, with all the early church leaders how they read the Apostle Paul. Um, and this is what he wrote. This is, this is um, Evagrius Ponticus. Here's what he said. He says, there are eight principal thoughts from which all other thoughts stem, he wrote. He died in 399 A.D. The first thought is of gluttony, the second of fornication, the third of love of money, the fourth of discontent, the fifth of anger, the sixth of despondency, the seventh of vainglory, the eighth of pride. Whether these thoughts disturb the soul or not does not depend on us, but whether they linger in us or not and set passions in motion does depend on us. I thought that was... Uh, Awesome. That was so brilliant. Luther, uh, uh, fast forward to the Reformation, Luther is reported to have said, you can't stop birds from flying overhead, but you can keep them from nesting in your hair. That's good. Repeat those eight again, slow. Yep. Uh, the first is gluttony. The second is fornication. The third of love of money. 
The fourth of discontent, that would be all of social media, by the way. The fifth of anger. The sixth of despondency. The seventh of vainglory. The eighth of pride. Did I still go too fast? Yes, you in the back. I see that hand. Yes, this is actually where that came from. Yep, yep. It was developed later into the seven deadly sins, and, and they combined two into one. Yep, but this is where it came from. Yep. He says, whether these thoughts disturb the soul or not does not depend on us, but whether they linger in us or not and set passions in motion does depend on us. The Pauline idea here of reckoning is a, is a psychological discipline that Christians are to exercise on an ongoing basis. Yeah. Yes, 100%. Yes, uh, uh, whatever your name is. Richard, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm drawing a blank. I'm used to saying Paul, Paul, who are you? Richard was saying, as Solomon in Proverbs says, as a man thinks in his heart, so he is. Absolutely. The, the Bible is known as ancient Eastern meditation literature. It's getting you to think over and over and over and over and over again from many, many, many different angles. It's filling your mind with, a, with, with its narrative. Yes? Well, if you're, if you're tempted to think you're sinless, then you've broken, you're, you're not sinless, right? And at that point, we're, confu- at that point, we're confusing merit with works. We're actually, say- we're actually still in the old sin system, aren't we? We're still playing according to the rules. If I can be morally good, then I can feel good about myself. We're, it's still the same narrative. We're in the old playing ground. Paul would say that these two do not work. Good point, Richard. I'm glad you brought that up. Secondly, um, oh, let me just give you another Pauline quote from another book, 2 Corinthians 10.5. It's a famous one, famous line. He says, we destroy arguments of every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God, and we take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. I think he meant that literally. I think that's what he meant. Secondly, Not only do we disassociate from the old self, oh my gosh, is it seriously 1150? Part two. Oh my gosh, you guys. It organizes life because, it organizes life because psychologically we have new priorities. It organizes life because, um, let me give you a quote from John Newton. If you understand the grace of God, he said, it will make the worst of times bearable and the best of times leavable. I love, I think there's so much wisdom in that quote. He's talking about priority. If you understand psychologically the grace of God, this new reality, it will make the worst of times bearable and the, and the best of times leavable. He's talking, so that means when bad things happen, a Christian can weep and say, I'm really sad. 
but I can only be so sad because that was not my main thing. There's an evenness that it creates. On the other side, when things go well, when you get the promotion, you can say, woo, this feels good. Okay, but hold up, heart. This feels good. This is great. But, it, but let's hold up. You can only get so excited because this wasn't your main thing anyway. You're already, com- you're already complete in Christ. See? It creates a, a, a new priority and organizes, organizes your life uh, accordingly. And, of course, this means that you will live differently. If your top, let me give you an example. If your top priority at work is no longer your achievement, success, or affirmation from others, what is your priority? You'll serve others. No, 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 no. If it's no longer money. Nope. If it's no longer greed. If those things are, if you're away from those things, then because you're, you feel, you know you're saved. You're psycholo- You're reckoning yourself in the new reality. You're going to help others flourish. You're going to help others succeed. You're going to promote others above yourself. You're going to love God and love other people. Your new priority will be other people first, and it will be actually genuine. You, you, you. That's all right. So most of us are welcome. To, you're join the club. Mo, you know, for those of you that are bosses out there. You can help your employees under you truly advance and succeed because you want what's best for them. You can, okay, for the, when people get promoted when you don't, you can say, you know what, man, I really wanted that, but I'm so happy for you. I'm really happy for you. Good for you. It organizes everything differently. If the new gadget comes out and you really want it, but you don't have the money for it, you can, you can wait. You don't have to be impetuous anymore. You can wait and say, okay, I can hold off on that because I don't need it to feel good about myself anymore. I can, no, I am already, I'm in Christ. I can wait and I can budget and I can save. Everything organizes and prioritizes differently. Okay, thirdly, and this is the last point. We'll get there. Thank you for your patience. What about the sin that dwells in our members? What about the automatic stuff that happens? Well, we need a new physicality, not just a new reality, not just a new mentality, but a new physicality. Look at verse 13, or look at verse 12. Let not sin, therefore. What is this? Is this an imperative again? Yes. This is another thing that you must do, that we must do. It will not be done for us. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. In other words, remember the reality here. And your members to God as instruments of righteousness. This dovetails with our sermon last week about the body. That the body is our instrument to worship God. And notice this is also in the imperative. This is something that will not be done for us. Let me, okay, C.S. Lewis. Anybody read Screwtape Letters? Okay, then you'll know what I'm talking about. Uncle Screwtape, in this excerpt that I'm going to read to you, he reproaches the apprentice demon Wormwood for permitting his patient to become a Christian. It's a letter to his... Uh, to his Padawan learner. He's, he, nevertheless, he says this. Listen to carefully what the, the demon um, screw tape says. There is no need to despair. 
Hundreds of these adult converts have been reclaimed after a brief sojourn in the enemy's camp and are now with us again. Here it is. All the habits of the patient, both mental and bodily, are still in our favor. In other words, we got their muscle memory on our side. Uncle Screwtape has, a, has deep insight into the psychology of redemption. Habits that are still ingrained, they, they, if they remain, if our habits remain, if we keep using our bodies as status quo, we will not realize the life in Christ to its fullness. That's what Paul is saying. So many Christians scratch, and I've been one of them, scratch our heads to try to reconcile our behaviors with our beliefs. I, as a pastor, I've sat across my desk from so many people that have been weeping saying, but Mike, I really do believe in Jesus and I love him. How come I'm still drawn to this? How come I still do this? How come I still fall into this? And it's this confusing thing. Peter understood this. Do you remember Peter? Remember the night that Jesus was betrayed? What did Peter say? He said, though they all betray you, I will never, I'm ready to die with you tonight. I think he meant it. I think he was genuine. And he, and he even was brave enough to follow Jesus, the only one to follow Jesus into the courtyard of the enemy. But then when it came down, when the pressure came down, he couldn't handle it. He was weak in his flesh. He denied Jesus three times. And the conflict brought him to weeping within himself. Oh, we all get it, right? This is Romans 7 stuff. What I want to do, I don't find it within me to do it. There's still sin in my flesh. This is Paul's answer. Begin yielding your members habitually, repetitively to instruments of righteousness. Don't yield anymore. Paul is saying that through repeating, repeatedly acting and doing certain things, in some cases, all, and psychology is finally, our modern psychology is finally catching up to this with neuroplasticity, basically saying what the Bible's been saying all the time. You do something enough, it will become habit, it will become a destiny, it will become your character. This is what Paul has been saying for thousands of years. If I was to take Paul and wrap a little thread around his wrist, do you think he could break out of that thing? I mean, look, he's got some guns. Of course he could, right? But what if I took that thread and kept wrapping it 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 and kept and kept and kept and kept and kept until it's a big ball of yarn around? Even though it's this little thread, he couldn't get out of that thing. That's what we do when we give our bodies over to unrighteousness over and over and over and over or when we react or when we get angry. And now it's a dynamic in our marriages. Now it's when we see certain people, we just go into that that person's mode. You know what I'm talking about? You do certain things. When you're up against stress, when you've been coping from trauma in certain ways over and over and over and over and over and over and over again, now when you don't need to cope from trauma anymore, you still do. There's a great book called Your Survival Mechanisms Are Killing You. And the premise of the book is basically, hey, you needed them when you were through the trauma, when you were in the trauma and the crisis. Those were good, but now they're running amok in your life. We need to shut those things down. Paul is saying, how? First, reckon that you're part of this new reality. And third, I, and I don't think, I think with the help of a community, you stop and you start 
yielding to something else. Notice he doesn't say just to stop. He's talking about replace that thing with a new thing. This informs our practices. Practice, practice, practice. Spiritual formation and growth. Here it is in summary. As we act like the new vision of the kingdom of God, it will reinforce that vision in our hearts, which will inspire more action, which will continue to reinforce the image of Christ in our life. That's the rhythm of growth for you and for our church. Let me read it again. As we choose to act like the new vision of the kingdom of God, it will reinforce that vision in our hearts, which will inspire more actions, which will continually reinforce the image of Christ in us, which will then inspire more actions. In other words, Paul is saying, yielding your body to righteousness will eventually become the new muscle memory of your life. You'll just start doing it. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine if our default was honesty, not hiding, this is, if that was our default. Can you imagine if it, our default was love versus lust, building up versus tearing down? Can you imagine? Can you imagine your family? Can you imagine your workplace? Can you imagine Seattle's impact? Can you imagine your kids? Can you imagine what it would be like when these things become just muscle memory? in our hearts, in our minds, and through our bodies. And sin begins to lose its grip on our bodies. Finally! Some of us have been struggling with ourselves. We have to take ourselves wherever we go. This is Paul's way out. This is, the, this is his view of redemption and transformation. I'm going to leave you with a quote from Oswald Chambers. I cannot say it's so good. Oswald Chambers, he says it so well. He says that if, if we've experienced regeneration, we must not only talk about it, we have to exercise it, he says. Working out what God has worked in. And he says, we must show it, quote, in our fingertips, in our tongue, and in our bodily contact with others. As we obey God, we'll find we have a wealth of power on the inside. In other words, he says, practice is the key. Let me read this quote to you. He says, The question of forming habits on the basis or reality of the grace of God is a vital subject. To ignore it is to fall into the same snare of the Pharisees. The grace of God is praised. Jesus Christ is praised. The redemption is praised. But the practical everyday life evades working itself out. If we refuse to practice, Oswald Chambers says, it is not God's grace that fails when a crisis comes, but our own nature. When the crisis comes, we ask God to help us, but he cannot if we have not made our nature our ally. I love that line. If we have not made our nature our ally. The practicing is ours, not God's, he says. God regenerates us and puts us in control with all his divine resources, but he cannot make us walk according to his will. We must do that. The outcome of these three stages, reality, psychology, and I would say doing this together. We've got to do it together, you guys. That's why our home fellowships are all, that's why we're putting it in place right now. We've got to do it together. 
including, you know, including God's part and our part, is expressed in, in, by Paul later on in the chapter. This is, the, this is the final outcome, verses 17 through 18. God be thanked. Can you imagine? This is what it's going to be said of us. Calvary Wallingford, God be thanked, you, Calvary Wallingford, who once were slaves to sin, have yielded wholehearted obedience to the pattern of teaching to which you were made subject and emancipated from sin, you have now become slaves of righteousness. I want to be a slave to righteousness, mind and body. Amen.